Bibles and turn to Galatians chapter 5, please. As you're turning there, just one second, need to make sure I know how long I'm preaching for. As you turn there and as you find uh, Galatians 5, I do want to acknowledge um, just the difficulty of preaching and especially after the news last week of Josh and what that means for his family and for our church. And it is sad to consider that Josh uh, won't be our pastor anymore. I told our small group this past week that it's good and this is normal. In fact, it's just part of the process. So it is proper to grieve and to mourn the reality of um, Josh and his sickness. And the truth is that Josh has led us really well. And by God's grace, he's led us well. And there's a lot of praiseworthy things to God for what he's done in our lives through Josh, because Josh has helped a lot of us in the room, this room run well. And so how do we move forward? Well, some ways, you know, we don't know yet, and that's okay. And in some ways, we keep doing the same things that God has taught us through Josh, right? And so we continue to press to Christ. So with that, let's just pray first and ask for God's help uh, in this time. Father, we come to you this morning. Lord, we recognize the difficulty of the situation, and we just grieve the reality of sin and sickness and how it has impacted our church and those that we love and how it prevents us from doing the things that we want to do for you, especially Josh and his love for us and the church and how, he would, how much he would love to just continue to pastor us and shepherd us as he has been doing so faithfully. And Lord, in your providence, Lord, you are keeping him from that. And we want to trust in you. And at the same time, it feels hard, and we don't have the answers. No, we don't have answers like why. Why would this happen to Josh? Why would you not allow him to continue? Why would you bring this upon our church? many ways we grieve the fact that it just doesn't feel right to us and we need your help to understand it's hard to understand when we see our sufferings firsthand when we see injustice is happening and you know we don't know why things like Ben's job situation changing Lord we don't understand how that's good we don't have the insight and the perspective to see why the sicknesses that our, the families in our church are going through, why those are good, why the Dietrichs have to go through the house situations, why grandparents like, the, like Dave's grandma is suffering, Lord, and we don't understand why you don't allow us to, to, to go through those things, Lord. We don't understand why. injustices and evils happen in this world. It doesn't feel right, Lord, and I ask that you would help us to have faith, Lord, to press on and to continue and to cling to you, Lord, that our eyes would be set on you, that we would be comforted by your love and by the fact that you are a great shepherd. And so would you lead us forward and would you help us this morning? In Jesus' name, amen. 
Well, as we consider the Christian life, it's easy to get discouraged, and it's easy to lose hope. And that's exactly what the devil would want us to do, right? But God has called us not to lose heart, but to continue to run this race together. So this morning we will take a look at verses 7 through 12. Particularly, we're going to finish the section by looking at verse 12. And let's just go ahead and read that. Galatians 5, 7. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view. And the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. Verse 12. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. In our passage this morning, Paul is using the illustration of a race, right, of running. And running, uh, analogous to our Christian walk. Now, I'm not a runner. I know some of you are. And you just, I think you just have to be a little crazy to be a runner, right? You just have to be a little crazy to be a runner. Now, but if I think you're crazy for being a runner, there's some people out there who are just straight up delusional. There's people who think, well, you know, there's marathons, and as if those don't sound bad enough, there are such things as ultra marathons, right? There's people out there who, for fun, run 100 miles or more, in a, like just at one time. How and why they do that, I have no idea, right? But there are people who do this, ultra marathons. Now, it gets even crazier. Not only is that's not even hard enough for some people. Some people say, well, 100 miles is not hard enough. I need to make it harder. So as if running 100 miles wasn't crazy enough, there's some ultra marathons out there that take place in really, really terrible conditions. For example, there's one ultra marathon that takes place in the Sahara Desert. Imagine running 100 miles in the desert, day and night. There's another one that takes place in the Amazon jungle. So now, not only do you have to worry about your body failing you, because your body was not meant to run for that long, you also have to prepare for things like mosquitoes and tigers and temperatures above 120 degrees. It's crazy. But why am I telling you this? Well, Paul is using the illustration of a race here, and I think it's very fitting. Because running requires discipline. It requires endurance. If you're going to complete a race, you want to make sure that you are prepared. You want to know what to expect so you can be ready. In a similar way, you cannot be naive about your Christian walk. Christian walk is a long race. It requires endurance. You can't be complacent. It's not just a walk in the park. You have enemies that would love to see you not complete the race. As we considered last week, there are dangers all around us. As Christians, we have three main enemies. Last week, we looked at first two. Your heart and the world. 
So this morning we will take a look at the third enemy, which is the devil himself. And if we continue in the race analogy, especially thinking running through a jungle, you have to recognize the devil is not just some harmless cat. He is a lion that wants to devour you. This is the warning of 1 Peter 5.8. It says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. This is your enemy. Now, Satan's not mentioned here by name in our passage, but his effects are seen throughout. Where? Let's take a look at verse 7. You are running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? Who is it? The false teachers, right? And then verse 8, Paul says, This persuasion is not from him who calls you. In other words, the persuasion to leave the things of God, to leave Christ, and to pursue the flesh, this persuasion is not from God. This is not from him who calls you. This is, does not come from God. It comes from the devil. The devil is the one who's persuading you to leave Christ, to trust in yourself. Satan is the one who fills hearts with lies. The false teachers are doing the bidding of Satan. After all, Satan is the father of lies. He is the one who whispers in the ears of the Galatians to be suspicious of the teachings that they receive from Paul. And then look at verse 12. There are some here, I wish, those who unsettle you. There are some here who seek to unsettle the Galatians. There are some who are bringing doubt into their hearts. There are some who want to do Satan's work and try to defeat you. Unsettle your faith. Unsettle your confidence in the things of God. The truth is Satan knows your sinful heart. And he uses the world. And he uses real men to discourage you. Satan would love nothing more than to upset your faith. This is what Jesus tells us too in, in John 8.44. This is what he calls out the Pharisees for. All right? When the Pharisees are opposing the work of Christ, this is what Jesus tells them. You belong to your father, the devil. And you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. In verse 41, Jesus says, you are doing the works your father did. All right, so what? So what does that mean for us? You should, be, you should know that you will face opposition. You have to be on guard. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your enemy is always working. You cannot be complacent in war. We've been looking in Galatians how to live by faith, right? And living by faith does not mean that you can just sit back and relax and do nothing. No, by faith, you actually guard yourselves with armor and you go to battle. You go to battle. So let's look at verse 12. What does Paul wish upon those 
who are doing Satan's work and wishing to unsettle the faith of the Galatians. Judgment. Verse 12. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. Emasculate themselves. When was the last time you wished this upon somebody? It's a pretty stark comment, right? It's a pretty stark thing that Paul says. I wish that you would emasculate yourself. Paul wishes judgment upon them. Now, what does this judgment mean? Okay, it's really packed, and I want you to see this. Some of your Bibles uh, may have a little footnote there next to that statement. Um, some of you, some of your Bibles won't, and that's okay. Uh, but what Paul wrote is, if you take it just literally, Paul says, I wish that those who unsettle you would cut themselves off. Okay, would cut themselves off. Now, some want to argue that all Paul here is saying is that he wishes that the enemies, right, that the uh, Jews who were opposing the work that Paul was doing, that those enemies would, should just be removed from the fellowship, right, that they should just cut themselves off. And there is a sense in which that is true. If you read Exodus and Leviticus, you will see countless times there's a judgment when people sin that they should be cut off from among their people. What that means is that they had to remove themselves from the fellowship, from God's covenant community, and they could no longer partake in the blessings of God with God's people. Right? They had to stay away. So that is true in a sense. There is no place in the church for those who are seeking to create division and propagate false teaching. You don't deal gently and patiently with a wolf. You cast them off. Which, by the way, this is one of the reasons why church discipline and the process that God set forth in church and his, his word for church discipline is such a help to you. It's a protection to you. It's a protection to the sheep. And it's one of the means that God uses to actually open the eyes of sinners so that they would see their sin and repent. So don't despise it. So yes, there is a sense in which false teachers should be cut off from the church, but there's a lot more to what Paul says. It's stronger, and that's why your, the ESV Bible captures it well. It says that you would emasculate yourself. Okay, think about it. What is it that the Galatians, that the Jews have been insisting on? What is it that they've been persecuting Paul about? It's this whole issue of circumcision. What is it that they, they think will make them righteous before God? At the end of the day, they think that the cutting of skin will make them right before God. That they would cut off their skin. If their righteousness is found in their ability to cut off some skin, then Paul wishes that they would go and cut themselves all the way off. Right? Pretty visual. Just why I think that ESV rightly captures the essence of it is not just being cut off from the fellowship, is that they would actually emasculate themselves. If circumcision actually makes you so holy, then why not go all the way and emasculate yourself? Right? Do you hear just how Paul is just destroying their arguments? 
And that's one of the reasons why he says that, right? He wants to show just the foolishness of their argument. Really, you think this is the thing that will make you righteous before God? Great, go all the way then. There's other reasons, too, why he would say this, and it's just amazing. Think about it. What, is, what does emasculation mean? What does it represent? When we say something is emasculating, what do we mean? Well, we mean that it makes, it takes away a man's strength, right? It makes something weaker, less effective. Ultimately, you're depriving a man of his strength when you're saying that he's being emasculated. And so Paul wishes that those who are preaching a false gospel would emasculate themselves, that, they were, that their power and authority would be removed. This is a judgment. This is a judgment upon the enemies of Christ. And we should remember that. Okay, this is, again, a little bit of an aside. But the world has completely forgotten then that this is a judgment. The world completely has lost sense of what is good and bad in today's day and age. In fact, some want to argue that things like gender-changing surgeries are good and are medically necessary. But woe to those who call evil good and good evil. This is just another sign of how wicked the world has become. So remember, you don't live in a morally neutral world. You do not. The world is your enemy. But the church has lost sight of this too. Now the church at large is creating emasculated men. And that should not be so. Because the church needs men who are strong. God made you men to be strong. And that is good. That is proper. The church needs men who will fight. She needs men who will oppose evil. She needs men who will protect from danger. But the church is so scared of strong men because strong men are dangerous. And so that they would rather emasculate their men and just produce a feminine version of Christianity. Now, I'm not going to say a lot on this because it's not the main point of our passage. But I do want to exhort you. I do want to exhort you to cultivate strength in your men. Cultivate strength in your men. To be emasculated is a judgment. So fathers, teach your sons to be strong, especially in adversity. And mothers, don't oppose this work. A lot of you mothers need to fight the temptation to soften your sons. Don't be so worried that, you know, that they'll get angry. In fact, take that anger and actually direct them in the right things. We need men who are angry about the right things and who will fight. Godly men should be angry at the enemy. And so let them fail in the right direction from time to time. God will take care of them. God will teach them and trust them to God and how God made them to be men. Also, wives, too, you should want your husband to be strong and to say no to you. When your husband says no to you, you should be really thankful for that. 
He's displaying strength. It's not easy to say no. It brings conflict. It brings a lot of work. It's a lot easier to just go along. But you should want your husband to be strong and to help you and say no to you. Don't make your husband weak. If you make your husband weak, you're hurting yourself. God has given you a husband to help you, to be strong for you. So Paul wishes that those who preach a false gospel would face judgment. All right, with this, the theme of judgment is here in our in the section of our passage, right throughout. And we'll see that here in a second. But he does wish that those who would harm others with false teaching would eventually feel the consequence of their teaching, and that their snares would fall back on them. So Paul wishes that those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. Now we should answer this question too. Is Paul being too harsh here? Is Paul just being too harsh? Why would he say that? Is that really necessary, Paul? Was that really appropriate? Couldn't you have been a little nicer? Why would Paul use such extreme language? Why would he, would he wish this upon someone? Okay, why is this in the Bible? Have you ever thought about that? Why is this in the Bible? Especially when you think about it in other terms, right? So let, let me read you from 1 Timothy 2, 3-4. This is what Paul himself also says somewhere else. He says, This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So Paul knows that God wishes that all men would come to know him. So Paul's aim is to bring men to the knowledge of God that all would know him. And so why would he say such a thing like this? Isn't Paul working against himself here? Isn't he opposing God here? Isn't, if Paul really does want to see all people come to know Christ as God does, why would he pronounce such a judgment? But the truth, right, is that it is precisely because Paul cares about people's souls that he says this. It is precisely because Paul wants all to know Christ truly that he attacks those who are seeking to deceive and to change the gospel. Think about it. When you care about something so strongly, you will oppose whatever stands against it, won't you? If somebody's coming after your son or your daughter, you will attack and you will protect whatever it takes because you love. So I want you to see that, God, that Paul's, God's statement, that Paul's sentiment is actually a reflection of his love for the sheep and his protection for the sheep. Paul cares so much about men's souls that he wants to keep them from perishing. And he knows and recognizes the danger of the false teaching and how that is keeping people from knowing the true Christ and knowing the true gospel. It's because Paul cares about souls that he wishes that those that are doing people to hell would emasculate themselves, that their teaching would lose all power and effectiveness. So when you hear a judgment like that, what you should hear is just how serious false teaching is. You should elevate the stakes. 
You should recognize that false teaching and bad doctrine is a really big deal. It deserves great condemnation because it's leading people to hell. Think about what's at stake. We're talking about your soul. Talking about each of your souls here this morning. And what is more valuable than your soul? Nothing should be more valuable to you than your soul. So we take this seriously. Paul takes this seriously. We as a church take this seriously. And maybe sometimes you're like, are these guys just, they're so, they care so much, they're so serious about these things. It's because we want to see you know Christ. We want to see Christ glorified in you. So this is a big deal to us. And it should be a big deal to you. Because there's nothing worse than unbelief. Absolutely nothing worse than unbelief. It will lead you to hell. We love you enough to tell you and to want to keep you from it. So what you should see is that the language that Paul is using is tame. Very, very tame in comparison to the harm that the false teachers are creating in the church. So all that to say, have faith in God's word. When you see things like these that are stark and they just seem strong and unnecessary, have faith. It is there for a good reason. These are strong things we're talking about. Because the truth is we have a powerful enemy, and he has many means to discourage you. So you have to be on guard to fight. But just like last week, I don't want to just leave you with that reality and leave you alone with it, because you're not alone. Last week, we looked at one of the hopes that we have, right? What hope do you have in the midst of all of your enemies seeking to destroy you? How can you stand on your own? Well, you don't stand on your own. You have a Savior who keeps you, who's powerful enough to keep you. And verse 10 says, I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view. God will keep you. But there's another hope and another comfort. All right, verse 10, go back with me. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view. So Paul has confidence in two things. You will take no other view because God will keep you. And two, he is confident that the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. Paul is comforted. He is confident that though he cannot be there, he is confident that God will do what's right, that the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty. So one of the hopes that we have as we face our enemies is the fact that God is just. God's justice is a help to you. The truth is that those who stand opposed to the work of God in your heart, and you have specific enemies, those that stand against, to see, against you and trying to see Christ glorified in your hearts, will bear the penalty. God will deal with his enemies as they deserve. None will escape. Ultimately, God's justice is giving people what they deserve. God is just, and he will give people what they deserve. So how is that a comfort to you? When you're discouraged, when it seems like everything's wrong, when it seems like your enemies are prevailing over you, and you see the wicked prospering, and you're serving God, 
And instead of receiving blessings, it feels like everything is going wrong in your life. You feel like instead of blessings, you're receiving punishments. And you see, how is this fair? How is this right? Doesn't God see? Doesn't God care? But because God is just, you, be, you can be confident that He sees, that He cares, that He will not forget, that those who oppose you will bear the penalty. God will do what is right. Those who maybe seem to be rejoicing now and living life for their sakes and in debauchery and living as rebels, they will not laugh forever. Those who live for themselves may experience short periods of happiness, but it will not last. Their condemnation is coming. And whether it's on this side of eternity or the next, God will give them what they deserve. Our enemies will be defeated. They will not stand. And that's a comfort to you as you press on. You don't have to fret. You don't have to take revenge. God's justice ensures that you, that he will do what is right. Now, this matters to you. This is big news for you, too. And it really matters where you stand with God. Because if God is just, he must be just with you, too. God's justice applies to you, too. Your sins also need to be dealt with. Do you know that you have sins? You know that you have not got done as God has commanded. You know that you have chosen to go your own way. And God must give you what you deserve. Think about your sins. Think about all of the weight of your sins and how much they've grieved the holy and perfect God. And if you're honest, you will know you have sinned greatly. And you deserve a great condemnation. If God is to be just with you, you should be separated from God and experiencing his wrath. The fact is you have contributed to hurt others. The fact is some of you are in hard circumstances because of your own sin. You've contributed to it. And so you should feel your weight of your sin and recognize that if your sins are not dealt with, something far worse is coming. Far, far worse is coming. If your sins are not taken care of, dealt with, you'll be punished for all eternity. This is what you deserve. This is what we all deserve. For those who are in Christ, though, right? For those who have believed and have repented, we don't have to fear that punishment. You've heard this. And how? How can that be? How can God be just and we not fear the punishment that we know we deserve? How is that fair? Shouldn't God deal with you as you deserve? How can God still be just? And not make you bear the penalty of your sin. 
How can God punish some and not others? Is he a just judge? And the truth is that God is just because he will make everyone bear the penalty of their sin. He will. His wrath will come upon the sins of every man. He is not going to leave any sin undealt. He will judge every sin. And so he is just to all. He doesn't just, no one gets a pass. You don't, God doesn't just overlook your sin as if it's just not there. He closes his eyes and says, la, 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 that's not really there. No, God sees your sin. And God has to deal with it. The wonderful thing, right, is that if you are in Christ, your sins have been paid for. Your sins have actually already been dealt with. If you have faith that Christ has taken the penalty for you, that Christ has offered up himself, he has bore the penalty for your sin. Your sins, if you believe and you've repented, you've trusted in Christ, God has already done justice to you through Christ by him standing in your place. All of your sins have been judged. But it was Christ who took the penalty, not you. And so the question that all of us have to wrestle with is, will you trust in yourself? Will you bear the weight of all of your sin? Or will you choose Christ to stand on your stead? The cross of Christ really is a wonderful thing. And by the way, this is just a reminder of the fact that God can never be unjust, right? There's no righteous man. There's no one who deserves everything in this life. We don't deserve a life free from pain. So any, any pain, any trial, or tribulation that we feel in this life is completely warranted because we deserve far worse. And so it's when you understand that, you understand exactly what you deserve and God, how God has dealt with you instead, that you recognize God's mercy and justice to you, even in hard times. So God's justice means that if you stand with Christ, God will deal with you as he deals with Jesus. So what is justice to you? If you have allowed Christ to stand in your stead, and your sins have been dealt with on the cross and crucified on the cross once and for all. And now Christ instead, in his holiness and his perfection, has given, given to you. If God is going to be just with you, he will give you what you deserve. And what do you deserve? The Father sees Christ's holiness and perfection in you. And if God is just, he will give you what Christ deserves. Can there be anything more amazing than that? That instead of dealing with you as a sinner and as a rebel who deserves judgment, he deals with you as he deals with his own son. And not because of anything that you did, but because of his great love for you. That is justice and that is love at display. That God would do that for you should just humble every single one of us this morning and lead you to praise him. God will deal with you as Christ deserves. All the blessings of Christ, the glory that is reserved for the saints is yours because of Jesus. That is God's justice to you. If 
You have faith and you believe. So church, believe. Trust him. And now to be clear, you just can't look at your life. You can't just look at your situation and base that as the, let's say that is the basis of God's justice because it won't always feel that way, right? You cannot say that God is not just because my situation around me feels like God is unjust. You cannot base reality on your situation. There will be many times when it feels like God is not doing right by his people. There will be many times when it feels like those who unsettle you are, are not bearing the penalty. There will be times when it feels like God is not for you. And you see, you know what is true. Your mind tells you, you know what is true. You know God's justice in your head. But you look around and you look at your situation and you think, how is God being just in all of this? Where could God be in this? Right? We, this is very particular to us right now. You think of Pastor Josh. You think of Caleb. You think, where is God's justice in this? Where, how is God doing right by them? How is God doing right by our church? How can there be so many wicked men who are prospering, full of health, and then Josh can't? Why is Liberty sick? You know, why does Sarah have to deal with a mess? Why do we have conflict? Why are things so hard in the Christian life? Why does my spouse have to deal with sickness? Why have we faced so much loss? We have so many instances of this in our church. All of you, very specific. But church, I could go through every single one of your names, right? And just remind you that though you're dealing with much, though you're disappointed at lost relationships, you have to remember God is seated on the throne. God will do what is right. He will act. He has not forgotten you. It may not come today, and you may not see it realized for years to come. You may not even see it realized in your lifetime, but God's justice will stand, and he will do right by you as a son and as a daughter. His promises to you are sure. And again, you can't base that on your experience. And I want to encourage you to find strength as you glean from the stories from the saints throughout Scripture. And this is how I want to end our time this morning. There's two instances of Scripture, but this is all over Scripture. I want you to see this. But two just came to mind this week for me. Two instances of Scripture where we see this happening. Think of Naomi, for example. Think of Naomi and Ruth. Did she feel like God was doing right by her when she lost her husband? And then when she lost her two sons, did she feel like God was doing right by her? No. She thought that the Lord's hand had gone out against her. Instead of being called pleasant, which is what her name means, she wanted to be called bitter because the Lord had dealt very bitterly with her. But did God abandon Naomi? No. He blessed her. At the end of the book of Ruth, we see that the women of the town bless the Lord for restoring Naomi and Ruth. And they said that Ruth became to Naomi 
like more than seven sons. And Ruth's son became like Naomi's own son. God restored her, and God did right by her, and God brought about great salvation through Naomi. Think of Joseph. Did it feel like God was doing right by Joseph when he was sold as a slave? Could Joseph look around in the prison cell when he was accused of something that he didn't do? Could he base that as the basis for the fact that God was with him when he was forgotten for years? Or so it seemed because God had not forgotten Joseph. Though many planned to do what was evil, God always was just and he did what was right. And in a single day, all right, it's just amazing. In a single day, Joseph goes from being at the bottom rotting in prison to being second in command in Egypt. From being humbled to being exalted in one day. Second in command over all of Egypt with authority and with power. But we see full, the full picture in Joseph's story. Right? We have the privilege of seeing how God is working through all. The, we, have, we have the full story. God was preparing Joseph to be the savior of his family. And Joseph could say to his brothers, this is from Genesis 50, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So church, your enemies do wish to do you harm. Your enemies are real and they want to unsettle you. And they may succeed for a little while. But none of it will happen apart from your father's good hand and his protection and care for you. In all of it, he is working for your good. And so our hope is that God is not done writing our story. God is not done writing the story of your, of your family, of your life. God is not done writing the story of our church. As we trust in God's justice, we can endure trial, persecution, all the attacks of the enemy because we know that we will stand with Jesus. And when we do on that last day, we will be able to, with confidence, look back at all of the afflictions and affirm that God was just in all his ways. Let's pray. Father, we praise you, Lord. There are days when it doesn't feel like we have many reasons to praise you because we look around and things are hard. And yet, Lord, you remind us of just how mercifully you've dealt with us. Thank you for stories like Naomi and for Joseph. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your justice. Thank you that you will deal with your enemies, that they will bear the penalty. Thank you for the comfort that it is to know that you're just and you will do what is right. And Father, most of all, thank you. Thank you, Lord, for not dealing with us as your enemies, for not leaving us apart from your graces, but bringing us into your covenant family, for allowing us to experience the covenant blessings that come from knowing you and trusting Christ. This is a gift that we don't deserve. And so I thank you that your justice for us was accomplished on the cross, and we praise Jesus this morning together. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.